You think you know a story, but you only know how it ends. To get to the heart of the story, you have to go back to the beginning. Today's episode of History Obscura has been presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you and me to monetize our podcasts, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so we always know how much we're going to get when we include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Tell them History Obscura sent you. Well, hello, listeners. This is your forever host, Mandy Gardner. And please do lend me your forgiveness for losing last week's reading in the void. I believe we've got it back now and possibly in better shape than before. Technology, you know? I can't even remember a time when the void wasn't there to juggle all my wayward papers. My poor great-grandmother had to do her own filing. Can you imagine? Huh. <laughs> Well, it looks like the inky blackness has decided to chop my original story into pieces, which makes tonight's reading part one. The story of the Tudors begins once upon a time in the late 12th century, when the family was neither powerful nor famous. In fact, the first Tudors were not even English, but Welsh. The Tudor dynasty traces its beginnings to Edneft Ficken, who was born sometime in the late 12th century, but the exact date has not been recorded. A servant of the localized North Welsh monarchy, Ficken made himself and his family indispensable to the princes of the Kingdom of Gwynedd in medieval Wales. Officially, he was the court seneschal, a soldier in charge of feasts, household ceremonies, and occasional judgments within the community, essentially a steward of the great house. Unofficially, he was the kingdom's most trusted diplomat and ambassador to the English. Ficken was intensely loyal to the Llewellyn monarchs of Gwynedd, and was recognized as one of the kingdom's most valuable warriors. At a time when Wales and England were completely independent of one another, grievances and spontaneous land grabs were common, and Wales in particular needed to be vigilant. When King John of England sent his own soldiers to conquer Welsh Llewellyn lands, Ficken successfully defended his country and took the heads of three English lords home to his ruler. Llewellyn had Edneft Ficken change his family's coat of arms to include three helmeted heads. The prince's loyal servant received lordships over the lands of Brynfanagel, Crycheth, and 
was also named Chief Justice of the Realm. Thicken was a highly valued man due to his defense of the kingdom and his work within it. In addition to his estates, titles, and royal favors, the most telling gift was his status as a tax-free landowner. At a time when Llewellyn was consolidating the northern Welsh kingdoms and establishing a system of feudalism throughout the land, tax-free status was only granted to royal family members, clergy, and born nobility. Ficken's line of descent was granted the same land rights as the most noble courtier, and this was his true entrance into aristocracy. To further embed himself and his progeny into the political fabric of the region, Ficken married Princess Gwensian from South Wales. Through the marriage, Ficken became cousins with Llewellyn himself, thus beginning the march of his ancient family towards its own throne. Gwensian gave birth to six sons, all of whom followed in their father's political footsteps by serving the kingdom of Gwyneth. These tutors were largely soldiers and diplomats whose work took them into the English kingdoms of East Anglia and Wessex. The family became very well known in England, enjoying a noble reception at the courts of kings. Edneath Ficken's grandson, Tudor Hen, was the first bearer of the famous Welsh name that would eventually be anglicized into Tudor. Tudor Hen was a lord of Penmynid in Anglesey, North Wales. This became a Welsh stronghold. It would be home to several generations of Tudors. <clears throat> Owain ap Meridud ap Tudor was born between 1390 and 1400. By that time, the Tudor given name had become a formal part of the family's surname. So, when Owain traveled to England, he was called simply Owen Tudor. Owen was a credit to his forebears in every way, except that he used his political drive to the benefit of England instead of his ancestral Wales. Where his father had supported the Welsh revolt against England, Owen Tudor instead sought his fortunes with the powerful oppressor of his homeland. He ingratiated himself with Henry V, the contemporary English ruler from the Plantagenet house, and became as necessary to the English king as his ancestor had been to the Prince of Gwyneth. When Owen Tudor joined the royal court, Henry V was beginning a massive military campaign against the French. For nearly 100 years, the House of Plantagenet had fought the House of Valois for control of France. In the fall of 1415, Henry V's outnumbered army won a dramatic victory over the French at the Battle of Agincourt. Over the next several years, Henry would go on to conquer Normandy and its capital, Rouen, one of the most prosperous cities in Europe. 
By August of 1419, his army was at the gates of Paris. The French found themselves in a precarious position. They had suffered significant military defeats, and the kingdom's noble families were preoccupied with intrigue and infighting. The Duke of Burgundy, a member of the Valois family, believed an alliance with the English was in the country's best interest. He persuaded King Charles VI and Queen Isabeau to sign the Treaty of Troyes, which proclaimed Henry V rather than their own son Charles, and Henry's future sons as the rightful heirs to the French throne. To solidify Henry's claim, he was married to Charles and Isabeau's daughter, Catherine of Valois. Many of the stories of Owen Tudor and King Henry V have fallen into legend, but early biographers claim that the former fought in the king's army and joined the royal retinue at court in 1415 as a royal steward. Tudor is said to have served the king's wife, Queen Catherine of Valois, by bringing her meals and tasting her dishes before she ate. Medieval royalty was always paranoid about being poisoned, so their most trusted courtiers were required to eat from the royal plates in case the food had been tampered with. Tudor's role as the Queen's taster shows his history with, and fierce loyalty to, the King and his family. Henry and Catherine's son Henry was born in December of 1421, but Henry V's good fortune was at an end. In August of 1422, he died suddenly in France, leaving England with an infant king. Before dying from apparent dysentery, Henry had named his brother John English regent until his son was old enough to rule independently. The nine-month-old king of England was also the grandchild and heir to the reigning King Charles VI of France, through his mother, Catherine, and through the Treaty of Troyes. With Charles VI's death in October of that year, Henry VI, just a child, inherited France as well as England, all before his first birthday. After the English king's death, Owen Tudor remained in service to Henry VI and his regent. His proximity to the crown gave him ample opportunity to socialize with the Queen Catherine, who was nine years his junior. Despite his Welsh royal blood, Tudor was still considered a simple courtier in England. Until 1432, he was not even afforded the, to quote, rights of an Englishman. Nevertheless, Queen Catherine and Owen Tudor became lovers. Whether they married or not is unknown, but they did have three sons, Edmund, Jasper, and Edward, who were raised as Prince Henry's half-brothers. The couple also had at least one daughter named Margaret, and perhaps others, but few records regarding unmarried women were kept in the 15th century. 
which is truly a great loss. In mixing his blood with that of the French heiress, Owen Tudor solidified the standing of his children and their descendants as noble and royal. However, a law had been enacted to prevent the Dowager Queen from remarrying without the consent of the ruling king. Since Catherine's son, King Henry VI, was not yet the age of 16, he could not officially consent to their being married. Therefore, when Catherine died young, in 1437, Owen Tudor was arrested and jailed for breaking this law, despite a lack of proof for or against an actual wedding. Two years later, Tudor received a royal pardon and was given his lands and titles back by King Henry VI, who had reached the age of majority. He was also gifted an annual pension of 40 pounds and remained a vital part of the English king's household until 1450. A decade later, he returned to Wales to fight in the Wars of the Roses on the side of his stepson. At the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, Tudor was captured and brought before Henry's cousin and enemy, Edward of York. Expecting to be taken hostage, Tudor realized moments before his beheading that he was going to die. His last words were rather romantic and lamenting. He said, That head shall lie on the stalk that was wont to lie on Queen Catherine's lap. End of Part 1 the Tudors. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, or just to get yourself a new chapter of historical fiction every single night, just go to patreon.com forward slash history obscura and join Frank and Tito's Nightly Story Club. Yes, that is Frank and Tito, the podcast mascot with scars over a million. Sign up and make sure he gets his treat money and he'll let me out of my cage every night to read you a story. <coughs> yes, yes, I've told them. If you prefer, you can do the same at buymeacoffee.com and search for History Obscura Podcast. Good night.